0: Uh, Romans 9, 14 to 18 is our passage. Let's read from Romans 1. Romans 9, from verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. If I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ, For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are race of lights, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of god has failed for not all who are descended from israel belong to israel and not all are children of abraham because they are his offspring but through isaac shall your offspring be named this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of god but the children of the promise are counted as offspring but this is what the promise said. By this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca and conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done nothing, excuse me, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told. The older will serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, Let's stand to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we acknowledge that gr- the grass withers and the flower faints, but your word, O oh God, will stand forever. We ask, Lord, that you may minister to us this morning through the preaching of your word. Let us hear your voice. Let us understand your word. Let us be transformed by the renewal of our minds as we receive your word this morning. Use it to draw those whom you you chose before the foundation of the world to yourself. Bless our children. Let them hear your word. Let them them believe. Enable them, Lord God. To embrace Jesus Christ who is freely offered in the gospel. Bless us this morning, for we pray in Christ's name. Uh, We have seen God's purpose of election illustrated and explained and applied. And now this morning we will see the election, the doctrine of election objected. And that's our consideration this morning. There is no doctrine of the Bible. There is no doctrine of grace which is as much hated by Christians as this one. It is sadly Christians who raise these objections. The unbelievers don't really raise these objections. When you hear that God, in the eternity past, chose a people for himself, what goes on in your mind? Some of you might be tempted to say, unfair, unfair because they didn't do anything good and the evil continued in their evil, they couldn't change themselves. that's our consideration this morning. But that's not the only objection. There are other objections which we will consider again. There in verse 19, which sees God as having made a mistake. Because they say no one can resist his will now there are other objections like the doctrine of election he does evangelism it nullifies they say human responsibility we'll deal with all those objections god giving us time let us deal with the first one today this objection is there is there injustice on god's part In other words, what Paul is doing is that he is a good teacher. He well knows that people hear this and they begin having questions, having difficulties. And now he raises those objections on their behalf. And the first objection here may seem like an innocent objection, but the second objection he treats it not so innocently. Look at how he deals with this objection. And the question is when God chose Isaac instead of Ishmael or Jacob instead of Esau, and yet not because of anything good or evil they had done, is it to say that God shows speciality? Is God biased? That's a question. Is there injustice on God's part? Verse 14. The response is an emphatic one by no means. God cannot be unjust. The question is, is there iniquity on God's part? It can never be so. God is just, God is faithful, God is the most holy, God is the most gracious, the Ancient of Days. So then, as we deal with this objection, we see Paul, number one, appealing to the Scriptures. We read in verse 15. For he that is God says to Moses, I will have mercy, on whom I will have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. It can also be translated: I will I'll be gracious on whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy, on whom I will show mercy. And this is cited from, from from Exodus 33, verse 19 which we read, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. They appeal to the word of God. You notice that Paul does not appeal to philosophy. He does not appeal to human reason. He does not appeal to the to the traditions of men. He does not appeal to the constitution of the land. He appeals to the word of God. Because the word of God is the final appeal. He appeals to the word of God to shed the light on what God does. We know that God cannot lie and what he says is what will be. This is the truth. Thy word is truth. We must not go to philosophy or human wisdom or traditions when we are dealing with matters of God. Rather, we must be grounded and rooted in his word and stand on his promises. So brethren, as Paul tells the church at Ephesus, let the word of God dwell in you richly richly, then when these objections are raised by your unbelieving relatives, by your children, by your, by your parents, by your brothers and sisters, when these objections are raised by your neighbours or by your colleagues at work, you would be able to appeal to the Word of God. It is for this reason we read, verse 17, for the Scripture says or thus says the Lord because what the scripture says is what God says. Scriptures alone is the means by which we understand divine will. Scriptures alone is the only means by which we can be made wise unto salvation. Scriptures alone is the only means by which you, believer, can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the Reformer said, sola scriptura, scriptures alone, communicate to us the way by which men are saved from their sins and made right with God. And what does scripture say to us today? As we read on, we see that the doctrine of election is a scriptural doctrine. You can object, but it is written. You cannot take it away. You might be an Armenian, but you cannot delete that doctrine from the Bible. It is written. And if it's written, it is written. You may not like it, you may hate it, you may refuse to preach it, but it is written. And I remember meeting with a young lady in one of the meeting forums we used to have in town. And she said that her father was a pastor. And she raised a question with her own father, who was a pastor, and asked about this doctrine of election. And the father's response was, there are things written that you do not touch. You Do not go to those passages to preach through them. And that explains then why they ran away. They all ran away from expository preaching. Very few pastors want to do expository preaching because then they would be confronted by the truth like this. So then choose, pick, and give it to the people. And, and you see, when you're going to give what you like, then they don't get the whole counsel of God. They don't get endified. They're not built up. So there are preachers who have deliberately decided that they will not teach the doctrine of election. But does that delete it from Romans? No. It is still there they cannot run away from it you know a certain armenian denomination i'm not going to mention it does expository preaching and it has produced the highest number of reformed believers because when you do faithful exposition of scripture it's going to show you these truths And you have no choice but to believe them if you're a Christian. Secondly, there is an appeal to the grace and mercy of God. The doctrine of election is the best display of God's grace and God's mercy. God is always gracious. God is always merciful. God is always compassionate. God is good. He cannot be otherwise. This is His nature. His goodness is sure. His faithful, his faithfulness is for sure. Because he is faithful. Even when we are unfaithful, God is faithful. Even when we are faithless, God is faithful. Remember how he revealed himself to Moses there in, in Exodus 34, verse 6 through 7, where he passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and children's children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate him. He is a God, merciful and gracious. He is a God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is a very message we will have in the afternoon as we conclude the book of Micah. But Paul appeals to the grace and the mercy of God? See, the doctrine of election tells sinners that you are dead, you cannot and you could not have possibly chosen God. The doctrine of election says thankfully God chose you before the foundation of the world. The doctrine of election then displays God's grace and mercy because what had you done to be saved? Did you, anyth- did you do anything to be saved? No. And the doctrine of election tells you that. So the doctrine of election is the foundation upon which we stand when we evangelize. When we we evangelize, we know that there are God's people who will believe. You know, if I gave you a fishing rod to go and fish fish, From Nairobi River, what are you likely to say to me? If I gave you a fishing rod, go and fish there. You will say, give me another work to do. Because you've never had Nairobi River to have fish, right? But if I had a fish pond and I gave you a fishing rod and I told you that there are fish there, then you would be more motivated to go and fish. So the doctrine of election tells us there are many in this city who belong to me. So what should we do? We go on preaching. That's, what, that's exactly what Paul was told while he was in Corinth. Paul, don't be discouraged. Keep on preaching for I have many in this city who belong to me. So the reason why we evangelize is because we know God is merciful and gracious. And we know that he has his people that he has chosen. And so we proclaim the gospel to them. And so we know then that the fish in your pod will swallow the bait, which is the preaching of God's word. And they will, be, they will be brought to the pot, to the. To, they will be brought to the, to the basket, which is the church. The doctrine of election then encourages evangelism because we know that God is gracious. He will surely save. And then there is the appeal to the sovereignty of God. We, we look at this passage and what is God saying? That he is sovereign. And Paul will say more of that in the next objection. God is sovereign. He's in absolute control of his universe. And he he governs his universe in all wisdom and power. No one can stay his harm. No one can question his wise decrees. His divine prerogatives must be respected and embraced. So then when God saves this one and not this one, it is his prerogative. When he saves this one at church, praise God. When he saves the other one at home in family devotions, praise the Lord. When he saves the other one, While on the road, like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, or like Paul, or rather Saul of Tarsus in Acts 9, it is his prerogative. And so, if we were all asked, How did you get saved? differently. We all were saved differently because this is his prerogative. We don't know how the Spirit moves. Convicting men of sin and working faith within. But we know that when He does that and you believe, you are saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. But no one can question God in how He chooses to save. Therefore, the Lord will show grace to those He chooses to show grace. He will have mercy in whom He chooses to show His mercy. He will pour his compassion on those whom he chooses to pour his compassion. Let me say one more thing about God's sovereignty. Who teaches us about justice? Our legal system, isn't it? God. It is God. It is all our laws are governed by God's law. And that's why, then, when, when the laws of the nation contradict the laws of God, we are to obey God rather than men. The Lord helps us understand, understand what justice is. But we need to understand that there are about three things regarding justice. There is justice itself. There is justice, which is the opposite of justice. But then, in God's scheme of things, there is non-justice. When God chooses to save a sinner, is it justice or is it Injustice, or is it non-justice? If it is justice, the sinner should be? Where should the sinner go if it's justice? To hell. That is justice. Because you are a sinner, the soul that sins shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. That is justice. Now, injustice is where a righteous person is punished. When you have not committed the crime and the teacher insists that you are the one who spoke in class and you need to be punished. That is injustice because you do not make noise. But what if we were to go back to the justice of God and see who was punished by God? Who was it? If we are going to say there is injustice on God's part, then the injustice was done against the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he knew no sin. God made him who knew no sin to be seen. So that we in him might become the righteousness of God. That is injustice. But it wasn't really injustice because there is another scheme of thing that I am calling non-justice, whereby there is mercy. You see, in mercy, it is neither justice nor injustice. It is non-justice, which is what the president does when he exercises clemency and pardons people who are in prison. Is it injustice, or is it justice? None of the above, isn't it? Now, is it injustice that the president did not say, open all the prison doors, let them out? Is there any injustice if the president didn't do that? Instead, he sent a list, sent a list to committee, committee prison, and sent another list to Kondiaga, and sent another list to Langata and another list to industrial area. All those prisons. And then he says, one, two, three, four, five. forgiven. Go home. But then hundreds or thousands of others are left in prison. Should, it, should the president not say, open the prison doors. You don't need any list. Go home. Sin no more. If he did that, there would be chaos. I think there might be more demonstrations, I'm afraid. But what the president does is that he will give a list and then they are pardoned. Presidential pardon. That's what God has done. He has a list. And the list is of his elect, he shows the mercy. He shows them grace. And that's what he's done to us. Though justice would have demanded that we be taken to hell, God's mercy prevailed, and we were turned from going to hell, and we are now going to heaven. Praise his name. So we cannot understand mercy on the scheme of. Justice and injustice. So when the question is asked, is there injustice on God's part? And Paul says, no, never. It can never be so. It is because we are not operating on the realm of justice, injustice. We are operating on the realm of non-justice, where mercy, grace are extended. But see... God is not only just. It's not that he suspends his own law because someone else was punished on our behalf. Who is Jesus Christ? He was punished on our behalf. Did that happen to him willingly or unwillingly? He was led like a lamb and slaughter. And like a sheep before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. He did not object. He gave up himself for us. He loved the church and gave himself up for her that she might be holy and without blemish, that she might be presented to himself in splendor. Was it willingly or was it not? If there was unwillingness uh, unwillingness on the Lord's part, then there would have been injustice committed. But the Lord was willing to die our death. The Lord gave up himself. If he had wanted, he said, he would have called a legion of angels. And fought for him and exterminated all the heroes and the pilots and all those Roman soldiers. But that's not what he did. Because he did it willingly. He did it willingly. So there is no injustice committed against the Lord. But there is justice because the Lord died on our behalf. He died our death. And he was punished for us. Therefore, God's justice was upheld, even in election. So then we ask, if God were to be just to Esau, what would he have given him? If God were just to Esau, what would he have given him? Death or life? Death, because Esau was a sinner. Nowhere do we read that Esau was sinless. He was a sinner, and he was punished for his sins. But because of God's mercy, he saved, or rather he chose Jacob, for he shows his grace and mercy. And we are saved and adopted by him all because of his goodness, not because of our goodness. There is another response. And this response is then very important to understand it. I've already explained it as I try to deal with objections, but look at what he says. He says election does not depend on human will or exertion. Verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see. election does not depend on man. For if we were to ask how or even on what basis does God elect one and not the other? The response is, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And this is a negative, positive response. negative because it depends not on two things it does not depend on human will and it does not depend on human exhaustion and positively it depends on god who has mercy this is what it does not depend on because you see many people many religions even many churches, have no problem accepting them both. I mean, you go to the Roman Catholics and they will tell you the salvation depends on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, Amen. But then, they, also ha- they will also add, and your works. On your works. Or on the saints' works, when you pray to the saints and you give almsummary to the church, and the saint's righteousness is credited to your deceased relative. Now, it does not depend on either human will or human exertion. Let's consider the human will. You've heard of something called the 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 free will. And we need to say here that the best of human will and desire is tinted with sin. And this is something that, that Jeremiah says so strongly in Jeremiah 17 verse 9. He says of the human heart the heart is deceitful. Above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But he says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. The heart of man, from where the will sits, is deceitful, desperately sick. No one can understand it. All men are slaves to sin. All men and women are dead to sin and blind to sin. And unless God intervenes with his mercy and grace, all men will go to hell. That's what we deserve. Depending on your will for salvation is like one who depends on a straw of wheat to cross the Indian Ocean. You put straw from Mombasa to India. Will you cross the Indian Ocean? That's what people do when they put up human will so high. We see this in Jacob's case. He was in the womb, having done nothing good, having done nothing evil as such, it was neither the earnest will of Isaac, his father, or Abraham, his grandfather, nor the sweet desire of his lovely mother Rebekah that that brought Jacob to have the blessing of election. It does not depend on human works either. The most industrious effort of man cannot compare to the free grace of God, bringing His grace and mercy. No human can produce good works good enough, good enough, acceptable to God. Being dead in your sins and trespasses, how can you? How can human exertion be acceptable? By an infinitely holy God. How can we, weak human, work anything that would be worthy anything before the Almighty God? So, the Armenian theology would prefer that their salvation depended on human will, and especially they think that there is such a thing as free will. And most of the world religions prefer work based religions, exertion. To exert yourself is to make effort. I am trying to be holy. Have you heard that? You ask a person, if you were to stand before God today, would God let you into his glory or send you to hell? And people say, I hope he sends me to heaven. Why do you hope he sends you to heaven? They would respond, because I try to be good. I try. I try. And, and I've had that I try so many times. Trying is not good enough. Trying will not save anyone. Decisional regeneration, where you are told, come forward if you want to get saved. Repeat this prayer after me. Make a decision for Christ today and not tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation, they say, which is, which is some truth. But then they say, unless you decide for Christ, you will not be saved. In other words, depend on human will. Human will has often been presented as if it is the hope of humanity. They say, you know, Christ died on the cross because of human sin. But Christ died for everybody. The only way to be different from everybody is for you to choose Christ. Christ's death cannot save unless you make the decision to accept him or to receive him in your heart. Open your heart today, you would be told. Uh, by the way, I've never had anyone open his own heart. But I've heard and read of God opening hearts of people, like he did open, open the heart of uh, Lydia there at Philippa in Acts 16. You cannot wheel when your will is stuck, when your will is dead, when your will is so deceitful, you cannot. A will that is dark and dead and deceitful cannot help you to come to Christ. It's not taught in the Scriptures that human will is a contributing factor to anyone's salvation. It is not human will, this passage says. It is not human exertion. For we got the right to become children of God because we were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So yes, it depends on will, but not human will, but God's will. Because it depends on God who has mercy. Why did the Lord reveal His mercy and grace to us? I mean, we were unworthy sinners. Undeserving sinners. Hell bowed sinners we were Gentiles, strangers from the commonwealth of Israel, we may have, we may have as well perished in our sins and rebellion, we did not really will salvation or run for it, in fact we ran away from it. We love darkness and wickedness, but God willed it for us because of His mercy and grace. So we can sing His mercy is more. And so our confession of faith states that those of mankind that are predestinated to life, God, before the foundation of the world, was laid according to His eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of His will, as chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere free grace and love, without any other thing in the creature as a condition or force moving him thereunto. By the decree of God, the good pleasure of his will, God chose his people in Christ from every tribe, every language, every height, every nation, every color. And these people give him, God gave them everlasting glory and they owe it to him, everlasting praise. It was not prompted by anything foreseen in the man. It was because of his mere free grace and love. It's the foundation of our, of our understanding of the gospel. And finally. The response given is that election depends entirely on God. Again we read, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. First of all, notice that God must display his power. You know, this last week, we all Kenyans have borne the brunt of the power of the opposition leader and the power of the government, the power of the uh, the state, as the public protests were staged from Wednesday to Friday. Businesses suffered and all that. The government flexed its power, arresting people, including members of the parliament from the opposition and all. But then there was a will of the people too, to protest. But when all that power is compared to the power of God, fails. It faints. The Lord God is sovereign and he has all power. And you know, clearly no one's will won the day at the end of the day this last week, isn't it? Things did not go as the government would have wanted. And things did not go as the opposition would have wanted. And things did not go as we would have wanted, isn't it? We would have wished that the price of petrol came to at least 90 shillings, isn't it? And we would have loved to see the cost of unga moving from 200 shillings to 100. But, ne- but then, our wills did not prevail. The Lord God is not like that. When He wants His his will to prevail, it will prevail. You can kick against it, but it will prevail. God raised the powerful Pharaoh. And you can also add, God raised Nebuchadnezzar. And God raised Alexander the Great. And God raised Jomo Kenyatta and God raised Daniel Troy Teach Arab Moy and God raised Moi Kibaki and God raised Uhuru Kenyatta and God raised William Ruto. Their will cannot prevail above God's will. It is God who raises these political figures. For a purpose. He says that it is for this very purpose that he raised Pharaoh. And what was the purpose? So there is no political figure who raises himself up. No one. He might be a tyrant. He might be a benevolent man. All of them are raised by God. There is no authority except from God, God raises them up for a purpose. So for what purpose did he raise Pharaoh? It is written here, so that he might show his power, notice that word, in Pharaoh. Note that the Lord not purpose to show his power against or through Pharaoh, But in Pharaoh, and so, he did not remove wicked Pharaoh. Instead, God let him flourish for a time. And then he drew the cord, and Pharaoh was no more. And a few years later, it can be written, and another Pharaoh rose up who did not know Joseph. Psalm 37, verse 35 to 36 describes a weakened and ruthless man like this. I have seen a weakened, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But then the Bible adds, but he passed away. And behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. God displayed his power. In the deliverance miracles which he performed to redeem the people, the nation of Israel, from the Egyptian bondage. His power was displayed in Pharaoh in favor of Israel. Israel, God chose as a nation to show God's power, I mean, to show God's grace. So that they may trust in him more and more and stand on his promises without wavering. On the other hand, Pharaoh was raised so that God may show his power. And there, God displayed his omnipotence, displaying his sovereignty to serve God's mercy upon the Israelites. The Lord Jehovah reigns, and we must not fret, even though pressed by many foes. He will use his power for our good and he will defend us from every woe. Praise his name. So Pharaoh was raised. Pharaoh was raised and God's power is displayed. But then you also notice that when God, when God raises a, a civil leader, the civil leader has his own manifesto. He has his own constitution. He has his own will. He does what he wants. And so, over and over again, we read when those when those uh, plagues were coming in. Egypt. You read through that, and this is what you notice. Sometimes you read that that uh, Pharaoh had it his heart. Let me show you that very quickly. If you go to the plagues in Exodus from uh, Exodus seven, Exodus seven verse three. This is what the Bible says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Then Moses went to Pharaoh. And the Bible says in verse 13 of Exodus 7, Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Chapter eight, chapter seven, verse twenty-two. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened; and did not even take uh, did not take even his, these to heart. Chapter eight, verse fifteen. But when Pharaoh Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. But then look at verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God, his own magicians. But Pharaoh's heart, the Bible says, was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord and Savior. Verse 32. But Pharaoh hunted his heart this time also, and did not let, them, let the people go. Look at chapter 9, verse 7. And Pharaoh sent and behold not one of the livestock of Israel was excuse me and Pharaoh sent and behold not one of the livestock of Israel was dead but all his livestock were dead but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go verse 12 but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses verse 16 But for this purpose, I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth, the Lord says. Then at some point, Pharaoh says, I have sinned, O Lord. I have seen. the Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong, verse 27. He even says that the earth is alone. But then verse 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. He and his servants So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go, to, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servant. Verse 20, chapter 10, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and did not let the people of Israel go. Chapter 10, verse 27, but the Lord hardened hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Chapter 11, verse 9, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And so verse 10, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I can go on and on. And it is Pharaoh handed his heart, the Lord handed his heart. So what do we conclude? Who handed, who handed Pharaoh's heart? The Lord. Who handed Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh. That's how it goes. Pharaoh handed his heart and the Lord handed Pharaoh's heart. Both were happening. I mean, we've read of both, haven't we? I'm sure you would have preferred it to go one way or the other. What this means, dear brothers and sisters, is this When you are set on your ways, when you are set on your own ways, the Lord can abandon you to your own ways. Because that's what you like. The Lord can let you flourish and prosper in your own ways. Is that what you want? Because you see the display of God's power. We see God not giving Pharaoh mercy. We see God hardening the heart of Pharaoh because it was already hard.